Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to the Ladies Promoting Transparent Advocacy Podcast. I am your podcast host, Shay Pate. And as I mentioned on my marvelous Motivating Monday, that today, Wonderful Women Wednesday, we were going to focus on an amazing young lady who was the headlines of the coronavirus vaccine at this time. She is 34-year-old Dr. Kizmika S. Corbett. She likes to go by Kizzy. So we're going to call her Dr. Kizzy. And there is so much out here about this young lady. So what I decided to do to kind of get her background for people who do not know anything about her, I went to the American Society for microbiology to get her bio because I thought that would be the fairest way to give people comfort in knowing that although she's only 34, she's educated and she's very experienced in the projects in which she works. So I'm going to read her bio. So it says that Dr. Kizmika S. Corbett is a research fellow and the scientific lead for the coronavirus vaccines and immune pathogenesis team at the National Institute of Health, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease Vaccine Research Center. Now, those are three different organizations that she's involved in. She received a BS in biology, um, excuse me, biological sciences with a secondary major in sociology in 2008 from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where she was a Meyerhoff Scholar. I don't know what that is. I guess you guys can look that up. And an NIH undergraduate scholar. She then enrolled at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, excuse me, at Chapel Hill, where she obtained her PhD in microbiology and immunology, which is dealing with the immune system. In 2014, a viral immunologist by training, Dr. Corbett uses her expertise to propel novel vaccine development for pandemic preparedness. So she's been doing this research for a long time, and now she's getting the chance to use all the things she learned. Appointed to the VRC, known as the Vaccine Research Center, in 2014, her work focuses on developing novel coronavirus vaccines, including mRNA-1273, a leading candidate vaccine against the virus that causes COVID-19. In response to the ongoing global COVID-19 pandemic, the vaccine concept incorporated in mRNA-1273 was designed by Dr. Corbett's team from viral sequence data and rapidly deployed to industry partner Moderna Inc. for U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval and they approved phase one clinically trial, which unprecedentedly began only 66, de 66 days from the viral sequence release. Following promising results in animal models and humans, MRNA-1273 is currently in phase three clinical trial alongside MRNA-1273, 
Dr. Corbett's team boasts, boasts a portfolio that also includes universal coronavirus vaccine concepts and novel therapeutic antibodies. Additionally, Dr. Corbett spent several years working on a universal influenza vaccine, which is slated for phase one clinical trial. In all, she has 15 years of expertise studying this. Now, it seems like, like I said, she's young and she is at 34, but she has 15 years, which means from when she was 19, she's been doing a lot of research on this. So what I did is they did a nice podcast episode. She was on uh, CNN. They were doing facts versus fiction. And CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, talks to her on his podcast. And he was with Anderson Cooper. And like I said, it was called facts versus fiction. Now, I want you guys to hear her on this interview in her own words and it was really really nice to hear the concerns that people in the black community have you know um she just made it clear rebuilding trust in medical institutions will take time and that's something that the health experts have to accept and she's right she she's absolutely right And she says, I would say to people who are vaccine hesitant that you've earned the right to ask the questions that you have around these vaccines and this vaccine development process. And I'm glad that she said that because people do have questions and she's right. They do have the right to ask questions. And she said for her part in all this, she's trying to help earn back that trust from the black community. She has been outspoken on the role systemic racism has played in the pandemic and has criticized the Trump administration for a lack of diversity on its coronavirus task force. She's quote as saying, trust, especially when it is, excuse me, especially when it has been stripped from people, has to be rebuilt in a brick by brick fashion. And so what I say to people firstly is I, I emphasize, and then secondly, is that, I mean, excuse me, is that I empathize, and then secondly, is that I'm going to do my part in laying those bricks. And I think that if everyone on our side as physicians and scientists went about it that way, then the trust would start to be rebuilt. And she's right. That is absolutely right, because... Trust is the big thing right now with the people of color, specifically African-Americans and the medical community. So, you know, I, I wanted you guys to hear in her own words what she feels about this. And uh, just, just listen to her and see what she says. My love for science and solving problems came from childhood. I was the student who would not leave a math problem unsolved. I won regional science fairs all the way from elementary school and onward. And so asking questions about the way the world turns, essentially, I like to think of it as like my purpose in life. That's Kismikia Corbett. She likes to go by Kizzy 
She's the lead scientist for coronavirus vaccine research at the National Institutes of Health. It became clear to me that for every single thing that I've read in a textbook about science, someone had to discover that. And I wanted to be one of those people that for a line in a textbook, which hopefully MRNA 1273 will be at some point, there's someone who discovered that thing and helped to drive that theory forward. And so it's, it's just a love of discovery. Corbett is only 34 years old, but already her unstoppable curiosity has led her to some pretty significant scientific discoveries. She is the top scientist behind Moderna's new mRNA vaccine which was submitted to the FDA last week and is expected to receive emergency use authorization as soon as next week. On today's podcast, I talked to Corbett about her life, her research, and the exciting potential of this new vaccine. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. My next guest is the lead researcher into trying to develop a coronavirus vaccine at the National Institute of Health, Joining me now is Kismikia Corbett. Back with us also is Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who uh, I, I know is going to be asking questions as well, doctor. Anderson Cooper and I spoke to Corbett back in April. That's when the pandemic was still relatively new in the United States, and the vaccine seemed like a far-off dream. I, I know, I'm sure you get this question from anybody you meet who finds out what you do. Any idea when a vaccine, assuming that this vaccine works, when it might be available for, for use? Yeah, so, you know, we are targeting fall for the emergency use. Um, so that would be, you know, for healthcare workers and people who might be in constant contact um, and, and, and risk of being exposed over and over. And then for the general population, our target goal is for um, next spring. And that is if all things go well and if these phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials work simultaneously for the good, our plan is to have people vaccinated all over the world by next spring. I got to tell you, back in April, I was surprised by her confidence that we'd get a coronavirus vaccine this year. Keep in mind, it typically takes years to develop a vaccine. So I was curious why Corbett was so confident. Well, you know, there was a lot of faith in those initial statements, but then also a lot of science. The HIV field, for example, has made a vast amount of developments over the last 40 years without there being a vaccine. And the work that the HIV field has done has in some part actually benefited the work that we've done in coronaviruses. And so we understood the surface molecule, the spike of a coronavirus in so much intricate detail. And we had such a good understanding of how to deliver that spike protein via mRNA that um, we were fairly confident that we would be very quick to getting to a phase one, which we did. But then from there, that we would be able to, in a very consorted, multi-institutional way, whether it be from the side of the companies, for example, with Moderna, us at the National Institutes of Health, FDA, et cetera, work together to fuel this vaccine development trajectory really out of necessity and also science. I want to ask a little bit, and I will tell you that I've been channeling you when trying to describe how this vaccine works, because that is a that is a... Uh, a big question, and, and I think a very, very reasonable question because we're talking about sort of a first here for humans outside of a clinical trial. 
mRNA vaccine, messenger RNA vaccine, involves uh, genetic material. Can you just simply describe how a vaccine like this works? Yeah, so I like to use the analogy of a telephone, essentially. So imagine your cell being a telephone and imagine the vaccine being a voice. And the mRNA is telling your cell to make a protein from the coronavirus, only the protein, the spike protein. It's like calling up the cell and saying like, hello cell, can you please make this protein? And so that the cell can make the spike protein and the body can make an immune response to it. And so that's how I try to describe it. It's very interesting. I think people sort of generally know, like, you know, going back to the late 1700s, when you think about the smallpox vaccine, that if you give the body uh, a little bit of the virus or you give some deadened virus or weakened virus, that you can hopefully achieve the same sort of immune response without making somebody sick. In this case, it sounds like you're turning the body into a vaccine-making machine for both. It's, It's generating, in this case, a portion of the virus, the antigen, and then it's generating an antibody response to that. When people hear mRNA and they hear that this is a vaccine that involves genetic material, And that's immediately going to to frighten some people. How do you reassure people? So what I try to do is I just try to explain to people that just by way of the way that these mRNAs are designed and the way that the cells are designed to even work with mRNA in general, that the message doesn't stay in your body forever. The message does not get integrated into your human DNA. And so... While the immune response that you get is hopefully long-lasting, the initial effects of what's being expressed by this mRNA in your body is very short-lived. So we're not, you know, making you into a superhuman machine or anything like that, but only sampling for a very short period of time, telling the cells to please help me build an immune response against this virus. When you look at these two front-runner vaccines, um, again, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, both mRNA vaccines, let's say, you know, it, it comes my turn to get this. When that decision time comes, should I take one over the other? No, you should not. Is there a difference? There is no real difference between the two vaccines. Um, the vaccine schedule might be slightly different, but largely the protein that is being expressed Uh, And the platform that is being used, which is messenger RNA, is the same. I mean, the efficacy results are, they are head and head and and compare and are similar. And so, you know, I get a lot of people who say to me, oh, my God, like, I want to take Moderna's vaccine. I'm only going to take Moderna's vaccine. Um, And I truly appreciate the support. But... That's a compliment to you. But if the FDA deems a vaccine safe and allows for licensure of a vaccine in the United States, you should be taking it if you have the opportunity to take it when it's your turn, whether it be Pfizer or Moderna or um, several other companies who may even likely have uh, vaccines to deliver by next spring or the end of next year. I want people to really, really understand that from where you sit in a pandemic where this virus is running rampant, 
and one person is dying every single minute in this country, you should not be betting vaccines on the level of, should I take this one versus should I take that one? You should allow the FDA to do that. Obviously, in full discernment, you should totally be aware of the data, et cetera, but you should allow the FDA to do that. And you should say, if the FDA said that this is safe and they've reviewed this vaccine and with stringent measures, because all of them are reviewed by the same stringent measures, that I would take it. You, you know where some of this, this distrust is coming from. I mean, absolutely. And look, this is the same FDA that did emergency use authorize hydroxychloroquine, and there wasn't really good data to support that. And, and some have argued that that was a actually a bad decision because people may have been harmed by giving, using this medication when they were particularly ill with COVID-19. So that's where some of the distrust is coming from. How, I mean, is that, is that unreasonable? Yeah, I, I think distrust is never unreasonable. I, I think that it is on the onus of the institutions to be trustworthy. So I, I don't think that distrust is ever unreasonable. Um, when you are a citizen and you are concerned about your health, for sure. What I can say is that emergency use authorization is still experimental. It's still an experimental phase. These emergency use authorizations are simply asking the FDA, with what we have right now, can this product be used in the most vulnerable of populations? While we continue to gather data that would allow us to license it for everyone. You look at the polling data right now in terms of people's willingness to get a vaccine. What would you say to those skeptics, those anti-vaxxers, or at least vaccine-hesitant people? And what about the skeptics within the black community specifically? That is most certainly an issue. And I wake up oftentimes on social media to, you know, people who are vaccine-hesitant with lots of questions and concerns. And um, I think that what I would say to people who are vaccine-hesitant is that You've earned the right to ask the questions that you have around these vaccines and this vaccine development process. And this overarching mistrust of the medical institution in general is something that is being highlighted now because of the dire circumstances of which we're in. But it is not news to me because I'm black and I... You know, I have a black family and I am well read on the history of injustice when it comes to medicine in the black community. And so one of the things that I've had to step out of this and say is that we're not going to be able to prove trustworthiness in this instance quickly. And that is okay. But what we do need to do is decide that we're going to take steps and even beyond this pandemic move in the direction to be more trustworthy and the reason why i say we and the reason why i say trustworthy instead of using the terminology they or distrust is because the first step is that as scientists and physicians and vaccine developers and etc is to understand that the onus of this problem is not on them 
and their distrust, it is on us and our level of trustworthiness. And so trust, especially when it has been stripped from people, has to be rebuilt in a brick by brick fashion. And so what I say to people, firstly, is that I empathize. And then secondly, is that I'm going to do my part in laying those bricks. And I think that if everyone on our side, um, as physicians and scientists, went about it that way, then the trust would start to be rebuilt. That's a, a really great way to put it. It is interesting to me that if people start from a focus of distrust, then the level of evidence that they require to, to be convinced just grows, right? You know, another thing that you were tweeting about early on was something, again, that you were prophetic about. And it's, it's this disproportionate impact that this pandemic has had on blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans. I mean, name the metric, uh, whichever one, and it's worse. Four times more likely to be hospitalized, for example. That was according to CDC data between March and November. It's pretty grim. How did it affect your feelings overall at the time and about your work going forward? It definitely increased what I feel like my duties in, in this vaccine response are because I do feel a level of being indebted to my community around not only just getting this right, but proving my salt. Um, I want that what I am producing scientifically to benefit everyone, but I want to particularly be able to say it at least equally benefits my community. My good friend is a viral evolutionary biologist, and I remember early on one of the things that he said to me is that viruses don't have brains, but viruses are built to pick up on societal infrastructure that wasn't built with brains. So basically the holes in our society, that's what viruses like SARS-CoV-2 thrive on. And one of those holes, unfortunately, are health disparities. And that's basically what is being highlighted, I think, throughout this pandemic is that long-standing health disparities are still apparent and that viruses like this are just going to pick up on those until we do something about it. And so for me, it is certainly something that keeps me up at night, so to speak. And it is my hope that as we continue to highlight health disparities, every time there's an epidemic, whether it have been HIV or COVID-19, that we start to fundamentally try to change some things. Health disparities. Keep that in mind. She kept saying it. Health disparities. I want you guys to really tune in on that because that's what this is really revealing. And we know that systematic racism happens not just in the legal system or with the police department, but in the medical field as well. And I think her being the person that is the voice behind all this in the vaccine, I think that's going to help a lot of people of color feel a little more comfortable if they have to take this vaccine. And as I said on my Marvelous Motivating Monday episode, where we vaguely talked about Dr. Corbett, but I wanted to focus on two women who were in the forefront of being on television, one is an anchor woman here in Savannah, Georgia, and one is also a correspondent for CNN, 
who were part of the trial for one for Johnson and Johnson and another one for Pfizer. And their reason was the same as Dr. Corbett's. They're trying to build back the trust between the African-American community specifically, but also people of color in the science and medical industry. So as Dr. Corbett mentions, you know, we are always trying to make sure that we can get trust when it comes to things that it's affecting our community. But we need to start paying attention to the scientists and not the politicians. And I wanted to just do a small episode on her. Well, it's a full episode, but there's so much about her I could have done and made this a lot longer than normal. But I wanted to give people her background so they can understand that this woman's been dealing with these type of situations and doing research for 15 years since she was 19. So I want to say bravo to Dr. Corbett, and I thank her for being the face that we're seeing right now regarding this vaccine. And I thank everyone who did do part of the trial phase and people of color who are showing the medical industry that we can volunteer to find out how it will affect us. Because as a lot of people were saying, as I mentioned in uh, Marvelous Motivating Monday episode regarding the virus, is that unfortunately we don't have enough people of color, especially in the African-American community, who's willing to do some of the trial testing. And according to the scientists, if they don't get enough people of color to do the testing, they don't know how it's going to affect us as a community. Because as we know, a lot of things are based on race. When it comes to the medical field, I mean, think about certain things that happen in our community that you always hear on the news. Percentage-wise, African-Americans are the biggest percentage, whether it's high blood pressure, diabetes, and things like that. So uh, I just wanted to, just like she said, I'm always trying to make sure that the information I give affects everyone But I definitely, just like Dr. Corbett said, I want to make sure my community, the African-American community, is informed about a lot of the stuff going on. Because I'm going to be honest, as I say in several episodes, I have a lot of friends at my age who don't know anything about what's going on and unfortunately don't really care. But we need to care because this is a matter of life and death. So I hope that Dr. Corbett's background gave you a little more assurance that She knows what she's doing, and I'm glad that Dr. Fauci is putting her out there. So right now, we have African-American women in the last couple of days that's been on the forefront, you know, and I'm proud of these ladies. I'm proud that they're doing, uh, they were, the people that we uh, highlighted on Monday were doing experimental trial for phase three of two different companies. And actually, three companies were involved in all of this that we've talked about, and that's Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. And I'm proud that the very first person in America that got it was a nurse who was an African-American and a female African-American doctor gave it to her live on television as they were talking to the governor of New York. So um, I just want to say hashtag Black Girl Magic. But hashtag vaccine possibilities of changing America and the world 
but getting America back up and running after this administration is gone in January. So I hope some of this information uh, was informative, actually all of it, but if you just got a little bit out of it, I did my job because that's all I'm trying to do is hold people accountable but give out the information. And as I always say, do your own research so you can find out if what I am saying and what other people are saying is true. So I'd like to end this episode, as always, asking you to follow us on Twitter at Advocacy Ladies. That's capital A as in advocacy, capital L as in ladies. And definitely um, follow us on the podbean.com uh, app. Because if you follow us on the Podbean app, you can then have your notification settings changed so that every time a new episode comes up, it is automatically sent to you. Um, the podcast excuse me, the Podbean app will tell you how to do that. And you can definitely follow us on the other apps because I don't know that much about some of them. I'm guessing they have the same notification where every time a new episode comes up, you can get it. So that's on Apple, iTunes, and Google Play, Pandora, Spotify, and Amazon Alexa. Tune in. So if you have any questions, please give us a call at 404 404- 855-7723. You know, you can always send us an email at podcasthostshadepotay19 at gmail.com. And you know, I like to end all my episodes with the favorite question. What do you have to say? Thank you for listening. <laughs>